Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival, usually. Today, we are joined by writer and director Edgar Wright for an end of year special podcast. Welcome, Edgar. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, we've had a, a sort of few chats on and off, and I know actually that you are a, a big fan of an under ninety minute film. I am. Uh, it, for the record, we should say that both of us are recording this after going to our respective office Christmas parties last night. So maybe like doing a podcast at nine a.m. was a bad idea. We'll see how it goes. But if there's any pauses or brain farts or or I mean, I am an error a lot anyway. So if there's more than that than usual, I just want to apologize in advance. But to answer your question, I am I am a fan of the 90-minute movie, and I was thinking about it because we'll get to it at the end when you asked me about about doing this, and then it came to the idea of doing like a, like a, a, a list of things you'd seen this year. I looked through and I saw that I'd seen an enormous amount of great 90-minute movies, and, and then I thought, oh, there's a reason for this, is that... I, you know, I have a lot of films at home, like I have a kind of quite a sizable library of DVDs and Blu-rays. And I guess, especially during the pandemic, I started, I guess, like blind buying things that I think I ought to see, you know, so there's a big pile of those. And usually they are like, sometimes I, if I have a little stack of things to watch, I'll stack them in duration order because then to my you know just by hand it's like this is the 90 minute pile this these ones over here on the far right of this shelf those are all like three hours plus so you know out one is gonna have to wait until a very long day (laughs) when i've got 10 hours to spare but i could watch this and so i hate to say it well no then maybe this is a good thing at home at least the cinema is a separate thing at home at least if it's something where I I think mm, I have two hours free, mm, I could knock off, knock off a ninety minute movie right now. So I do like I guess I've like gravitated towards a lot of these shorter films, um, just in terms of uh, efficiency during the day, or, or or watching something, or like I you know I might be at home on my own thinking, well my girlfriend's out at this dinner and she'll be back in a couple of hours. So when I knock off one of these ninety minute movies, so there's been a lot of that I will admit. And um, sometimes if you have a longer period free, like, okay, I've got the afternoon off, I've got no plans, it's rainy outside, wouldn't it be great to watch the movies? Then you start to think, hey, you know what? In four and a half hours, I could watch three movies. So there's there's that element as well. We have a little mini film festival in your house. And and also, you know, I'm sure as a lot of people say on this podcast, as I know, I you know, having heard people say it, Making a 90-minute movie has slightly become a lost art. You know, back in the day, the studios uh, would would make, I guess they would be programmers or, or seen as programmers that generally that was like a good length for things. I mean, obviously, not just 90-minute movies, but, you know, in the kind of 30s and 40s, lots of movies that are like 70 minutes long. My, my friend as in LA has got this uh, cap saying, make movies shorter. Uh, yes he yeah. does yeah 
uh, it's for charity. For the record, I don't have a problem with long movies either. I've sat through Killers of the Flower Moon twice without taking a, a bathroom break. And I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what are your thoughts on why movies are generally longer? We are not opposed to a longer movie. No. Loved Oppenheimer, loved Killers of the Flower Moon. There's been a lot of three hour films coming out of late. Mm. Um, I sort of like the two extremes. I kind of like films that are really short. Or if you're going to be long, like, let's really go for it, lads. And Scorsese did such a good job uh, with Killers of the Flower Moon and making that feel like it absolutely flew by. So that, that's sort of where I come at. But in terms of the industry, I, I just wonder if it's sort of a bit by committee because a lot of the films that people often say are too long are sort of the tentpole blockbuster types and they're all about two hours and ten two hours and twenty well i mean there's no reason that needs to be two and a half hours long is there really i mean there's a lot of that which i find strange is that i don't know how we got here where generally you would think the kind of films that are more pulpy should in theory be shorter so i i agree with you is i watched the other day um rada jude's do not expect much from the end of the world, which is nearly three hours long. And in fact, the final shot of the movie, I think must be 25 minutes long at least. And as I was watching that film and I started to realize, oh, this is going to be the last shot of the movie. I was really enjoying it. I was completely captivated and in a different world. So I, I, I have the same thing. I don't mind that with specific things. I think to me, it's more the thing of why some of the franchise movies are as long as they are. They're often sort of the seventh or eighth installment in something, and they're still two and a half hours long. Like, I mean, we get it, guys. <laughs> and actually, it'd be quite bold for a superhero film or a, a you know an action movie to be ninety minutes or less. I mean, wasn't even. I might be wrong, but I feel like even Scream Six was over two hours long. Yeah, I think it was like two hours and ten or something. I mean, come on, guys. Like, we've already seen like a ninety-minute version of this film. Yeah. <laughs> So I I find that a bit baffling. I in a weird way back in the back in the day, franchise installments would get shorter. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because they kind of you don't actually have to tell as much story. You can get straight to the good stuff. So I I find that particularly strange. Agreed. And I do miss those sort of you know like the Death Wish sequels were under ninety minutes. Halloween's got a few under ninety minutes. Oh you yeah. Know, like people those those stuff that's good. An eighty five minute horror or something. That's superb. Uh, but yeah, if someone could, whoever's listening, if you could just sort of commission some under ninety minute franchise films, we'd love to cover them on this podcast. I have a theory about film length though, because I I get asked about it all the time as a director, and one of my theories is that the the sort of spread in length I think might be connected with digital editing mm -hmm. because on the Avid now most directors myself included you can sort of really edit your film in a very um a very slick way before it even goes to the mixing stage or you know gets graded so I think what happens and this is just a theory is the directors fall in love with their cuts and then I think in the day when you people used to edit on film, if you took a scene out, it was unlikely to come back in. They would say, we need to get rid of a, a scene from this film. And then the editor would literally lop out like <laughs> 10 minutes of the movie. I think now people fiddle a lot with cuts. And so you get lots of different versions. And certainly I've done that. I, I've had things where even in an attempt to cut something down, sometimes the thing that will stop me is a continuity error thinking well we could cut out this scene but then we'd have a massive continuity error 
and that's something that would keep me awake at night. Now, as a result, is my film five minutes longer than maybe it could be, perhaps, but also I, I wouldn't be able to live with the, well, in that scene, they had a jacket on, and then in the next scene, the jacket is just completely gone. <laughs> so there are things like that. But so I, I, Shaun of the Dead is still my shortest. Well, actually, no. Shaun of the Dead is still my shortest uh, 35 mil feature. <laughs> <laughs> Fistful of Fingers is, Fistful of Fingers is 78 minutes long. And on that particular movie, I had the opposite problem where the assemble edit of the film, and for people who don't know what the assemble edit is, that is literally, it's not even the first cut of the film. Is literally when you lay every shot end to end in order. You know, sometimes with some people's films, that might be like a six hour version. Fistful of Fingers, the assemble edit was 74 minutes long. That's as long as, that's as, that's as much material as we had. And I was sort of panicking a bit because what it meant is that, and this is a lesson I've learned since, is I couldn't, I couldn't tighten the film up that much. I couldn't make it as pacey as I wanted it to be because there was nothing to work with. And what happened was I wanted to reshoot some stuff or rather shoot some more stuff. And we couldn't really do it. We didn't have the money. It was the wrong time of year. Like now it was the winter and we've been shooting in the summer. So we did two things. Number one is that we made the opening credits and particularly the end credits really long. <laughs> and number two, I inserted a scene in the dark where there's a scene where Graham Lowe as the hero blows out a campfire and then him and his um, Native American mate, not a very convincing Native American, um, have a conversation in the dark, which goes on for two minutes. <laughs> so I was just like, well, this is a way of like padding it out. So... I had the opposite problem on that film. and I've never had that problem again. A film needs to be the length it needs to be for the story. And, and when you feel the length, it's because there's stuff in there you don't need for the story. So it's, it is sort of a fine art, but it's nice when it naturally convalesces to be under 90 minutes and you get a great story and we have that tight runtime. Well, I'm always amazed by films I watched in my youth that I feel like are so jam-packed with incident. I watched Robocop again the other day and that film is 100 minutes long. And I was like, wow, like, good luck on making that today. You know, like it would, it's amazing. And it's, and I think it's just a, it's also just an economy of um, shooting and writing. And maybe in Hollywood films, at least, the sort of people have moved away from a concentration on craft in terms of writing. And I don't know. I mean, I think that's the thing. Say for like, keep going back to just because it is two and a half hours long. <laughs> it's sort of a thing where on those franchise movies, they have preordained set pieces that they've probably pre and spent all the effects money on. And then they have all these sequences and then they get to be longer than maybe they should be. And then in a way, the running time is already somewhat preordained before they've even started shooting. <laughs> <laughs> and so it isn't something where... You know, and I, I know this happens as well as people kind of look at a, f a finished film and they say, well, we could cut that out, but it costs that sequence costs $10 million. So I think that comes into it as well. But a as a result, you end up with all these movies that I don't think th those movies, and I'm sorry to keep picking on one particular one, let's just say generally, I don't think people will return to them as much. I think there's a, a why a younger audience is getting into rep cinema is because there are all of these gems that are really tight 
and like pack full of incident and and do the job in like 90 minutes or 100 minutes i don't think people will be returning to these franchise installments that are like 155 minutes long <laughs> like it's just such a commitment you watch them once and maybe you've forgotten about them by the time you got back to your car but i don't think people will be returning to them well i've noticed for the course of doing this podcast doing it for five years now and um you know it was very much film focused but i've noticed some listeners saying like oh yeah this film's really good and it's only a bit longer than an episode of stranger things or it's only a bit because like tv has just also got longer and longer and longer and some episodes of tv are almost 90 minutes now the, the episodes become not uniform as in they're all completely different lengths and that's, you know, I think that's something obviously it's come with streaming that doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. But, you know, give me give me a 22 episode of 30 Rock any day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like where it crams in more jokes, more lines, more scenes than some other films do in two and a half hours. <laughs> Producer Louise, who edits this podcast, also edits TV shows. And like, you have a 30 minute slot on the show. Absolutely has to be 30 minutes or it messes up the schedule. And I, I know you with uh, some of your TV work, you you were on network TV. You would have had a, a runtime to hit with things like Spaced. Yeah, but then sometimes we get in trouble because I think on on the BBC, you had a bit more latitude with the half hour slot, but you couldn't go over half an hour. Mm. <laughs> like, But I think there's one episode of Spaced where we pushed it very far as in I think it was like 27 minutes long and Channel 4 were really mad at us that we wouldn't hand in something shorter so they said well you don't get a trailer for next week then and that was we that was us having our wrists slapped so I think there's one episode of space which is maybe 26 and a half 27 minutes and it might be one of the final ones or maybe it was episode six of the second series but they penalized us by not letting us have a trailer that's tough i mean the the young ones which is a bbc show the original versions of that were over half an hour long they were like 35 minutes long which baffles me <laughs> like i don't know quite how they got away with a 35 minute show in a half hour slot i mean it suits the young ones though if it was any show it's yes. great that it was that show <laughs> i think it's controversially later when they repeated them they slashed out the five minutes oh. but i think they're probably all restored on dvd and streaming Normally on this podcast, we invite a guest to pick one movie and add it to our fictional film festival, which is now accumulating quite a little repertoire of under 90 minute films, over 100 movies. Wow. So do check our episode titles for some film uh, recommendations, listeners. Uh, but Edgar has not just brought one movie. Uh, Edgar has very kindly brought 10 movies for us. Also, these are all films that I watched this year. And what I did is I came up with five movies that were new to me this year and five old favorites that I rewatched this year. So I, I actually in... When you asked me to do this, all of the films that I mentioned today are things that I've actually watched this year. That's impressive. And it makes sense as well with that uh, under 90 minute DVD pile that you've uh, you've got. I, I'm a big believer in watching the physical media by my TV. And if it needs to be watched, it has to go by the TV. So I have to look at it and feel yes. a bit guilty um, every single day. And then, I, then, it, then I'll, I'll do that. I sort of kind of have essentially like an in and out tray of just a pile of, they're like one stacked on the outside of the shelf that are a, uh, you know, lying horizontal rather than vertical. These are these are the ones I need to watch, and they are stacked in duration order. <laughs> That's incredible. I'm going to borrow the three your hour plus system. pile has not really been touched that much this year. I am afraid to say. That was my lockdown project. All of my long unwatched Blu-rays. So I, I got Yee finally uh, watched that. Um, a lot of Edward Yang films that are all sort of over three hours. I, so. I did the same thing. I watched uh, Satan Tango. I watched the whole of Shoa in one day. I did. I watched a lot of long films during the pandemic as well. 
Let's go to your first film on the list, uh, Edgar. We've got Dance Craze, the 1981 documentary of British Two-Tone. 85 minutes long. That's incredible. I think I had seen some clips of this film on YouTube, probably like ripped off a VHS. It was unavailable for a long time. And then the BFI re-released it on Blu-ray this year, but they also re-released it at the cinema. And I went to see it at the IMAX, I guess at the premiere of the re-release. And it completely knocked my socks off because even though maybe I'd seen little clips of it. So it's basically a documentary uh, shot during the Scar revival in the late 70s, early 80s in the UK. Um, The two-tone record label did a very successful tour. This film was shot in 1980. I think even maybe by the time the film came out, at least the sort of specials in the form that we knew them had already started to split up after Ghost Town. Or rather... Um, three of them went off to, including Terry Hall, went off to form Funboy 3. Either way, this film is just like captures like lightning in a bottle. And apparently the director, Joe Massa, originally wanted to do a film just about Madness, uh, who he met on their US tour. But then he changed it to sort of cover the whole two-tone movement. So this this film, this concert film, features madness, the specials, the beat, the selector, the body snatchers, and bad manners. Unlike a lot of other concert films, it just uh, it alternates between these acts. So they obviously shot the entire sets of these bands. I don't know whether those will ever see the light of day, the entire sets. But it's it's really amazing watching it because you run through like so many great songs. There's a point in the movie where in a row, <laughs> like it has so many great songs in it but in a row there's like rock steady by the body snatchers lip up fatty by bad manners madness by madness too much too young by the specials and on my radio by the selector all in one run in the movie so when i was watching it at the bfi imax i was just dancing in my seat the entire time it was impossible to kind of sit still in that room and it's interesting for a film that was on v just on vhs for many many years restored it just looks incredible at the q a that i went to uh, the director wasn't there but the cinematographer or rather the operator actually joe dunton was there this is one of the first films shot on the steadicam oh it's interesting because unlike um some other concert movies pretty much the camera is always on the stage with the performers there are some cameras in the crowd but mainly they have footage just taken on the stage and the Steadicam operator, Joe Dunton, is right there with the band. So it feels incredibly immediate. And also, the other thing that's worth stressing about this film is watching like a 1980 music venue and how low the stage is and how lax the security is, as in there is no security. <laughs> by the end of the movie, the final song is like Nightclub by the Specials. And... Almost the entire audience have got up onto the stage. You know, there's the, the people are just jumping onto the stage the entire time. And, and it's actually a really great ending because Terry Hall is like standing on the drum riser amongst the crowd who are now all on the stage. It's just got so much energy just pumping off the screen. And it really like led me after watching it. Uh, I went completely down uh, a scar rabbit hole again particularly just listening to some of the early Madness albums and the specials and the selector. And it was, uh, and, and also at this screening that I went to at the BFI, a lot of the members of the band were there. Oh, wow. So that was really special. Like Pauline Black, 
um from the selector was there and um and Buster Blood Vessel was there and two members of Madness were there and Jerry Damas from the specials was there. So it was really quite a wow moment um seeing this film and them all just sitting down the front and doing a QA. But I, I was I was really I was really knocked out by it. And obviously I felt very spoilt that I got to see it for the first time on the IMAX screen on the South Bank. And also little sidebar extra 90 minute movie, which I is a real curio. And I wouldn't say it's like a classic, but I found it incredibly charming is in 1981. Did you know that madness starred in a biopic about themselves playing themselves? Incredible. It's directed by Dave Robinson, who is the label owner of Stiff Records and essentially Madness's manager. And it's basically like a sort of Ken Loach, Mike Lee version of the Madness story with them playing themselves. Now, it's not like they're great actors, but it is, um, I think maybe if it looked modest at the time, it's now incredibly charming. And also it's an amazing time capsule of seeing 1981 uh camden and kentish town oh, that's cool the climax of the movie is at the dublin castle on camden parkway so that's my little sidebar one for dance craze there's also as a chaser madness's film take it or leave it which is is well worth a watch it's like one of the best gigs you'll never go to this film <laughs> i'm sure there's people out there who were there at the time i mean i haven't had a chance to explore the extras on the blu-ray so i'm not entirely sure whether Presumably, they must have shot the entire gigs. But it was interesting, actually, on stage, they were talking about, obviously, it was shot on 35mm, that they were talking about, uh, which you have to do when you're shooting on film, is is change like mags. I think they were talking about they had to work out like when to sort of change the mags between the cameras. Because it's not like there's a lot of cameras shooting it, I don't think. You know, you have to make some choices. At some point, an operator has to sort of like change like put a new mag in and that's going to take a few minutes and then you know you're down to just three cameras instead of four or just two cameras instead of three but it it is it is so beautifully done and also it has some witty stuff in that film where they cut it together with pathé newsreels so there's little pathé newsreel clips about um from the 30s and 40s of like here's the dance craze they're sweeping the nation and it will have little breaks in it which is also a a smart idea for a concert film is that it's almost like they knew is like i don't think they can take this much energy in a row with all of these songs let's just have a little pathé news break because of the uh, soundtrack album like it was just so popular and and for ages it was quite hard to watch the movie but you could listen to the soundtrack and it's great now that the bfi have put this blu-ray out uh, for people to check out so 85 minutes i think a good first entry on your list ah, and take it or leave it is also under 90 minutes if you want to like have a little double bill let's put it on the list too what we might do maybe is make a little letterbox list of all of the films that make them up today and, and we can see who's <laughs> who's watched what yeah <laughs> Attention, everybody in camp. Stay where you are and bolt your doors. Our visitor has returned and is dangerous. Stay where you are until notified and bolt your doors. Stay where you are. Oh. Easy, doctor. Easy. It'll be all right. What happened, doctor? In the greenhouse, I was working. I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air, and I heard Olson scream. When I turned, the thing struck at me. Should we go to film number two, which is uh, a classic, The Thing from Another World? Uh, the Thing from Another World um, from 1951, directed by Christian Nyby. And depending on who you believe, Howard Hawks will come back to that. Some people put it as a Howard Hawks movie. 
I had seen it when I was a teenager. I think I saw it after the John Carpenter film. I was certainly very aware of it because I think I saw the John Carpenter film when I was maybe like 10 years old and was completely knocked out by it. And obviously, because it's a remake, I wanted to see the original. And I think I liked the original when I was a kid, but maybe because the John Carpenter one was fresh in my head, it didn't have as much impact on me. Now, returning to it, and I don't think I'd seen it since I was a teenager, so returning to it like, you know, 30 years later more, I was really sort of taken with watching this one again because obviously the John Carpenter film in its special effects is more advanced and does some things with the creature that the 50s one simply cannot do. But what's interesting, especially because there is the Howard Hawks, um, Howard Hawks, you know, produced the film and there's a lot of discussion and disagreement even amongst the cast and crew. <laughs> like most people say that Christian Nyby did it, but Howard Hawks was a very strong influence on set. And some people say that Howard Hawks directed the whole thing. There's a sort of similar he said, she said element to the story of Poltergeist and Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg as to who exactly made that movie. But what's interesting about the Howard Hawks connection, even just as him as producer, I don't want to take away Christian Nyby's credit. Even as a producer, what's interesting is that Howard Hawks was like a sort of a master of all trades in terms of like he had done classics in many different genres film noir screwball comedy western he could sort of do it all and in this like a horror sci-fi movie and but what's interesting which i never really appreciated when i was a kid because maybe i hadn't seen that many other howard hawks films was the screwball well i wouldn't say screwball banter but that fast dialogue is so ratata and so and there is a little screwball element in it in terms of a the you know the um which doesn't exist in the uh John Carpenter film you know little will they won't they between Kenneth Toby and Margaret Sheridan which is absent from the Carpenter film but the dialogue in it is so good and again this is an 87 minute film but it packs in so much and like a lot of films from that period where 30s 40s 50s actors are just generally talking faster (laughs) (laughs) and the audience just has to keep up and and it was joyous i really i think when i was a teenager maybe with the the john Compton one in my head i hadn't really appreciated the character work and the great performances in this the other thing as well which now to look at it in context and again being older and understanding um how films were made back then it's worth saying about the thing from another world that the practical effects in it are really incredible. And there is a scene which, as a director having done stunt scenes, made me recoil from the screen because it looks so dangerous. So there's a scene where they try and set the thing, played by James Arness in a suit, they try and set the thing on fire. And in trying to sort of burn the thing, they end up sort of burning part of the base and you know it's a 50s film so those fire effects are not faked it's really happening and it's not just the fact i think i think the thing from another the world in 1951 has the first full body burn of a stuntman in a suit so there's that aspect to it 
you know, that's now a, a stunt that you've seen in many films, but I think this was the first one. But what is also shocking in that scene is how quickly the rest of the set goes up and how and the, the actors are obviously, the real actors are not stuntmen, they're in close proximity to the fire. And these are things in old movies where, like, you know, they couldn't fake this stuff. They didn't have, like, visual effects to do the fire and the smoke. So it looks and feels really dangerous and 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 that in itself i mean obviously let's hope it was all safe and nobody got hurt but it looks so exciting it's <laughs> so exciting i mean there's a couple of really great shocks in this movie sometimes in movies there's those little pockets of incredible 90 seconds where like as part of a set piece is like everything in this little pocket of this film is like iconic and immediately burned onto your synapses and and that fire scene starts with this amazing shot of the door opening and the thing in silhouette at the end of this cabin it's just amazing i mean so this film i mean it was always great and i remember even when the carpenter one came out critics were not necessarily on board he had a lot of really vicious reviews for his film which is now obviously considered a, a classic by all and one of the things was people were saying it's not as good as the 50s one. And, you know, you can see that there's an element to that in terms of what the 50s film can't do the can't exactly do the creature as described in Joseph Campbell's short story. But it's character work and 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 also just, uh, you know, as a sort of rollicking adventure, it's 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 really great. So I was really happy to return to this film. And I don't know why I decided to rewatch it again, other than I think I had the DVD and I said, I, I haven't seen this in decades. And it was fantastic. Sci-fi films you know, from this sort of era where a lot of the effects are done in camera, they just they just hold up, especially when it's done you know, really well, as, as well crafted as uh, the thing from another world. You forget it was made in 1951. Like this film is like 70 years old and it just doesn't feel that age. Just the setting is brilliant. And, and also the fact that this is a 50s film and it's set in the, you know, the Antarctic. I loved it. And I, it was really great to watch it again. It gave me an appreciation for it as part of uh, Howard Hawke's body of work even as a producer, if not a director. We'll, we'll let them argue that out. I did like sort of just looking up the film and seeing like actors just say totally different stories, actors who worked really close together, you know, about who did what and who didn't do what. Um, yes. A nice little drama to, to sort of follow on. Well, I think I had it. There's a quote from uh, Christian Nyby himself, you know, because obviously he gets asked about it all the time. It is, I'm just reading this quote. He says, did Hawks direct it? That's one of the most inane and ridiculous questions I've ever heard. And people keep asking that it was Hawks style. Of course it was. This is a man I studied and wanted to be like. You would certainly emulate and copy the master you're sitting under, which I did. Anyway, if you're taking painting lessons from Rembrandt, you don't take the brush out of the master's hands. <laughs> I hope he said it exactly like that at the Q&A when he went off. Bonjour, Chef Didier. Bonjour, Nicotine. Vous êtes resplendissante, comme d'habitude. Ah, merci, c'est gentil. Dites-moi, je rêve ou vos mamelles ont encore pris du volume Ah, euh, j'ai l'impression aussi. Enfin, je suis sûre, même, oui, c'est vrai. Ça vous va très bien. Ben, merci. Merci, chef. Euh, faites venir les autres. Let's move on to our, our next film, a new release. came out in the UK in 2023, Smoking Causes Coughing. This was a Picturehouse release, I, am I right? You were, yeah, absolutely. This is a Picturehouse Entertainment uh, film uh, where a company I, I work at. And this is our second film that we've released uh, from Quentin Dupois as well. Both of the films we've released from him have been under 90 minutes. I think he's an under 90 minute kind of guy. <laughs> well, I have to say that this film made me feel a bit behind the curve with Quentin Dupin, who I haven't seen as much as I should have. And, and seeing this movie made me feel like, 
a bit of a dum-dum for not sort of keeping up. That said, he is ridiculously prolific. Like, I feel like he's made two other movies since this one, right? Yep. Yeah, he makes about two a year, it seems. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so jealous. Well, I absolutely love this film, and I was trying to describe it to somebody. I saw it on my own at the picture house, and I just laughed like a drain throughout. Because it's it's nice to see, I think, in this day and age, especially with indies and international cinema, so much weight is put behind um, films that are worthy and uh, have like a message. And so it's nice to see a film that's just 100% daft. And I was trying to explain this to somebody, and I said, it's like uh, the Power Rangers directed by Louis Boonwell. <laughs> like it kind of felt like discreet charm of the bourgeoisie Mighty Morphing Power Rangers. That's my best way of describing this movie. It's like a little anthology film. Um, Tobacco Force, the name of the the name of the superheroes in it, uh, are taking a little breather after you know um, fighting a demon turtle. And just go around the campfire telling stories. And then it just goes off on these little surreal Boonwellian stories that usually revolve around some kind of big gross out gag. Beautifully made, like so dryly done. Lots of great puppet work as well. I just is just one of those movies that you feel like, well, I've never seen anything like that. And I probably never will again. This is like this guy. I mean, I know he's. He's very idiosyncratic, um, but I, I, I loved it. I mean, what? how would you, not having seen as many of his other films as I should, how would you compare this to the rest of his work? Tonally very similar. I don't think his other films, or if he's made another anthology film, I've, I've not seen it. He always comes up with a concept, a unique concept, and and he really just runs with it. Like his first feature film is called Rubber. Yeah, like a killer tire. Um, his uh, a film just before this is called Deerskin, um, which is about a guy who becomes obsessed with his deerskin jacket, and that's the whole. That's what that's like the one thing the whole movie explores. And I think with this, it was all of the you know what do Power Rangers do on their off day, and they're all sort of very fantastical and surreal, and uh, and they've kind of got. Like, I think he's really inspired by what he watched as a kid. So, like, you know, children's TV shows, but then also 70s and 60s, 70s monster movies, you know, it would have been dubbed over in French and watched. It definitely felt like a lot of the Japanese shows like Kamen Rider and stuff like that. And obviously Power Rangers as well. But yeah, it's funny, like, because I like that aspect because there's been things that uh, I've heard people talk about. I remember... I remember Simon had an idea. He wanted to do a film about the people who have to clear up after Godzilla. <laughs> he wanted to do a rom-com about that. And I I, I thought it was... I think him and Jess were talking about it at one point. Now I'm going to say this on a podcast. People are going to ask Simon and Jess to make this film. It was called That Thing because it was basically they were like going to have a will-they-won't-they-fall-back-in-love uh, relationship, but they were two people who had to clean up after Godzilla. I thought that's a funny idea. And then separately, Quentin Tarantino once said about he wanted to do Mystery Train, but in a Godzilla movie. In Mystery Train, there's the a song that's playing on the radio that links all the three films. And he had an idea of doing that, but Godzilla attacking was the thing that linked. And I said, oh, that's so funny. Simon and Jess have an idea that's similar to that. So now I've called both of them out. Now people say, now somebody will say to Quentin Tarantino, when are you going to do your mystery train via Godzilla? But there's also that Marvel comic as well, Damage Control, which is about the guys who have to clean up after the superhero, supervillain battles, which I'm sort of surprised they never made into anything. But we 
we don't need more guys uh, i quite like it when like marketing and publicity sort of leads into or like raises your expectation for a film and then the film can like, do a left turn so all of the marketing really is is the guys as tobacco force fighting the monster and, and the action sort of stuff and then you know 15 minutes in when they're at a retreat <laughs> around a campfire telling personal stories it's it's such a good surprise obviously i've ruined it now for listeners but no um, that's, the, that's, <laughs> that's the movie but it's 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 so good and they're still dressed in their ridiculous they're on a retreat but they're still wearing like the lycra and the helmet and all of this sort of stuff um and then they tell these 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 different stories and it just lets quentin uh dupois like really just explore these these again like wild concepts but the ones where it's more of a short form idea you know 10 minutes about one particular thing what i love about it as well is that from the title and the poster you would have no idea what the movie is <laughs> which i think is maybe a, a a great thing about his films generally i mean i guess like with rubber and deerskin it's more obvious what the premise of the movie is i don't think from the poster where you have uh, some french actors dressed like the power rangers and the title smoking causes coughing would have any idea that it's actually like a surreal anthology film that that one still uh, of them in their sort of power rangers costumes was was so sort of uh, intriguing and i think that's the reason why picture house acquired the film we just saw that still and it was a director we'd already released and, and loved working with and like what i mean that's incredible whatever it is is going to be interesting <laughs> and then the film just really uh, really delivered on it but we saw it at a bio screening sort of festival you know they're all quite dry so people checking their cell phones all the time like waiting to like see if they need to phone and make a deal but um and normally they're quite quiet even for comedies but that screening people were howling you know like it just cut through really sort of tickled people uh and as soon as it sort of got quite funny and quite bloody we knew we had to uh, put an offer in <laughs> it's funny as we as we'll see there are other movies on this list that are international films which are like funny and uh and st- i mean it's interesting because with film festivals the general films that come out as prize winners are of a certain ilk and it can be great but they're sort of usually film festivals will want to award something for its um its emotional heft and its themes and so then when you get films like this that have nothing really on its mind other than making you howl all credit to Quentin Dubois Stacy what are you doing We go on to our next film, The Ruins. I'm so happy to talk about this. I've talked about this on podcasts before because I feel like when people say what film that was not well received at the time do you love? The answer is The Ruins. Because this film is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it is one of the better horror films made by Hollywood in the last 20 years. And I had seen it at the cinema when it first came out and I'd watched it again since and then more recently... And maybe around Halloween. And my girlfriend, I wouldn't say, is a big horror fan. Um, but she wanted to watch one. But she said, I don't want to watch an older one. Can we watch something more recent? And I, I, I gave her a little, some options. I usually make her like, she goes, make me a pile. <laughs> like, And then I'll have to sell them to her. <laughs> you know, she won't just take my word for it. I have to sell them to her. And I go through the things. And she saw the cover for the ruins. She said, oh, that sounds good. I said, oh, it's about, it's about these tourists that are on vacation in Mexico. And they go off the beaten path to explore some ancient Mayan ruins. And then 
shit gets crazy. And my girlfriend absolutely loved it, which made me very, very happy because it's one of those movies. Have you seen The Ruins? I've not seen The oh, Ruins. Okay. This is like one of the few ones on your list, which I, I haven't seen. I highly recommend it. And I also recommend maybe, okay, I'm not going to spoil it then. But I, I guess it has a thing in it where it's one of those horror movies where you, you either have to go with the plot or not. I know that's probably true of many horror movies. But what it actually is... Okay, I'll tell you this much, is that they get to the ruins that that one of uh, the friends of uh, somebody in their resort has already gone and he's going to meet them and it's their last day on vacation. So this group, two couples who last day in Mexico who haven't left the resort and they think, well, maybe we should go and see something. Well, don't you want to see one of those Mayan temples? And this guy goes, oh, my friend is at a, a really uh, obscure kind of secret gem. It's not on the map. <laughs> like straight away, you know, this is bad news. So they, some of them slightly reluctantly, Jenna Malone's character is uh, very reluctant to go, but sort of gets cajoled into it. And then as soon as they get to the temple, which the the taxi driver won't take them anywhere near. They have to walk sort of several miles at the end of it because he refuses to go any any closer. I wonder why. As soon as they get there and they're accosted by the locals who are sort of shouting them in a language they don't understand, they run for cover onto the temple itself, which is a bad idea. Because basically the thing that's uh, why it's sacred ground, it, well, they assume because it's sacred ground as a temple. No, it's because literally the vines on the temple are alive and and will uh, they're alive and will sort of invade any person who steps onto them. Every orifice. And uh, basically like the, 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 the temple is cursed by these killer vines. So I'm... You know, listen, In the, there's not too many great killer plant films out there. But this, for me, is the daddy. There's also, I'm, I'm not going to spoil this bit. I've told you the basic premise. So it is a killer plant movie. There is a moment in the film, which is, to me, is like the thing, what people sometimes call it the dropout moment of the movie where you're, the something in the plot where you're either with it or you're with it. You're not with it. I love this particular bit of, um, I won't, I won't spoil it, but I'll say that they... The person that's gone missing, they can hear their cell phone coming from deep within the temple. So they can, and also all of their cell phones are not working. So they can hear somebody's phone ringing deep inside the temple. So they have to go and get that phone. What happens when they get that phone is a work of genius. (laughs) And I absolutely love this movie. It's also interesting because it's 90 minutes long, dead on. If you have the DVD, it's obvious that in test screenings, they had different versions of how to end the movie and on the dvd i have it has like three alternate endings one of which i wish they kept the screenplay is written by scott smith who also wrote the novel um who wrote um a simple plan the the book which um sam raimi's film was based on i don't know whether the ending on the uh dvd was actually the ending of the novel but there is a, there is an extra ending if you have the DVD. I was thinking, oh, I wish they kept that bit in. That's really cool. Anyway, I think this movie is highly underrated. Um, cinematography by Darius Konji. It, and it didn't do well at the time. And I remember, actually, it's produced by Red Hour, which is Ben Stiller and the late Stuart Kornfeld. And um, I think because sometimes when films don't do well, you know, usually in Hollywood, you don't hear from anybody. But I sent Ben and Stuart an email raving about the ruins. Actually, I think they were both bemused by 
because maybe they'd done lots of other comedies that I, I hadn't emailed about. And then suddenly he's like, I love The Ruins. It was great. And he goes, oh, wow. Oh, that's good. It's not doing very well. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. I said, <laughs> I think it's great. Anyway, so this film shouldn't be rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a proper gnarly, highly original, highly inventive, really well shot. It's like beautifully shot. Obviously, one of the world's top DPs doing it. Mm. I'm excited for you to see it, Sam. I can't wait. Uh, yeah, it came out in 2008. When I was reading about the film uh, earlier, it, it was described as a natural horror film. And I thought that maybe, was that like a typo? It was basically supernatural. But now I understand the sort of eco, uh, you know, the plant-based uh, horror uh, that's going on here. It's nice as well, because I think they built the temple set. I think it was shot in Australia. It wasn't shot in, in Mexico. It was shot in Australia. But they obviously built that set. And so the majority of the film is is outside. It's really well well done, I think. They did a really good job. Oh, that's cool. I know um, Carter Smith, the director, has uh, he, he's often a name you see at like Sundance, working in that sort of space. But um, I need to go back and, and check out The Ruins. This is his feature debut, isn't it, as well? Yeah. I actually haven't seen any of his other movies, but like Carter, if you're listening, I feel like I've really bigged up this movie on several occasions now, and I, I will continue to do it. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is uh, it you know, makes me watch lots of films that I haven't seen uh, yet. And it's nice homework because all the films are under 90 minutes long. Uh, so this is going onto my DVD pile by my TV later on. I promise you you'll enjoy it. If not, you'll have never seen anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> He fought in the Winter War. He lost his home and his family to the Russians. He became a ruthless, vengeful soldier who took orders from no one. The Finns, they gave up trying to discipline or control him. They just sent him out, alone, into the wilderness to hunt Russian patrols. He became a one-man death squad. Should we go to another film, a new one this time, uh, Sisu? I felt like I need to apologize because the distributors of Sisu were trying to get me to watch it before it came out many times and I was busy. And then I saw it later after it came out and I, I, feel, I feel bad that I didn't see it on the big screen and I feel bad I didn't see it with an audience. I feel bad that I didn't see it before it came out and couldn't have raved about it because I absolutely loved it. So my apologies to the distributors of Sisu for not watching it in time. I love this film. And maybe, I mean, you, you've interviewed the director. I mean, my takeaway from this that was something that was really, I think, just in terms of talking about what I love about this film and in stark contrast to what we're talking about with the bloated franchise installments, here's a film that's an hour short of that, which is just all incident and all action. And... I guess it's a Finnish film. It's set kind of in Lapland in World War II, and it's about a <laughs> a old prospector who crosses paths with the Nazis, and uh, they decide to steal his gold, and that's a big mistake. And basically, the rest of the film plays out like, even though it's um, you know, it's a World War II Nazi film, I would say it almost plays out like Roadrunner, like this guy um, cannot be beaten. Um, this guy cannot be outfoxed. It's just a pure pleasure to watch this old man f*** up some Nazis for 90 minutes. What more could you want? It's a great structure and it's got these different sort of chapter headings uh, there. And it just sort of, it's like a, it's almost like a different sort of sketch, you know, how is he going to take them down in this chapter? And there's some really inventive work as the film uh, progresses. 
Maybe a good double bill would be the zone of interest followed by Sisu. Wow. <laughs> as a as a sort of a, as a fun chaser to the sort of the terrible, awful, like sort of gnawing, uneasy horror of uh, Jonathan Glazer's film, then to sort of actually watch a bunch of Nazis get their comeuppance would be really nice. As an audience member, when you watch Zone of Interest, you don't know what to do with yourself afterwards. So yes. if someone just puts another film on, that would actually be quite nice. <laughs> it, would, it would be a cathartic experience, for sure. In a way, I think that, uh, you know, in, in um, Glorious Bastards sort of changing the plot line so Hitler dies, his... Mm. <laughs> uh, it was a bold sort of choice to sort of like get, you know, let the um, the Jewish soldiers have their triumph. Also, what I really loved about this film is I just thought it was really well shot and just, I think, a, a good film for like film students to watch in terms of just economy of action, not any wasted shots, really well staged, like just with action, really good spatial awareness and a very well thought out. And I think as I was reading about it, that the director, um, and forgive me if I bungle this pronunciation, Jalmari Helander, mm-hmm. that he was going to make another movie. And then because of COVID, he switched his plans to make this because it's, it's, but it's also completely action packed and then reasonably intimate at the same time. Like it's all on location and it revolves around a relatively small cast of characters. But what did you um, learn about the film from talking to him? I think he was really keen to kind of tell a film through action. And like he was saying, you know, a lot of 80s action films really inspired him. The Rambo movies, First Blood. But just, you know, a lot of that stuff really where, you know, you have often those films were built around a big star. In in this film, he doesn't have sort of like a, a household name, but uh, Jorma Tamilla, who's the star oh, of the film, fantastic. he knew that, this guy could do what he wanted. So he built the film around this actor's strengths. Um, you know, like being able to say so much with saying so little. He's got a really expressive face. Um, he's an older guy. He's got some like really interesting lines. And he's like, he knew he wanted to like shoot this guy's face without him saying so much words and and just put him in these different scenarios. So it was partially that he knew he had access to an amazing actor and he just built the film around him and he got to sort of lean into, you know, some of his 80s action uh, fandom as, as well. Big year for action heroes in their late 50s early 60s absolutely this movie john wick chapter four <laughs> mission true. impossible dead reckoning i think a double bill with john wick chapter four would be quite fun uh, as well actually two very different takes you know, one is three hours long one is 90 minutes both pack in some really inventive uh, action work uh, he said he also wanted to put sort of the finnish world war ii story on screen because see it's a big thing for people in finland but in terms of cinema there aren't so many stories uh, about it so he he just sort of wanted to sort of put their hand up and say you know in finland we were doing stuff too what is the definition of sisu so strength of will determination and, and perseverance so it's lots of that you know acting rationally in the face of adversity he said it's very finnish you know it sort of describes sort of a finnish state of mind well it's a strange thing because it's like a it's the perfect title for the film and yet also it's a title that maybe is stopping some people who would love this film from seeing it because it doesn't scream off the page what it is. So I, I, I like the title, but it is that thing where I know lots of people who haven't seen this film yet that would absolutely love it. And it's funny because in a way it doesn't have like an action movie title. I don't think that's a negative, but it's just interesting in terms of 
I wonder what it's called in other territories where they go for a more blunt in your face oh, yeah. title. <laughs> Do you like those, um, you know, when you see an English language movie translated and, and released to somewhere else? What would you call this film in it? What would it be a different title for it? He's a prospector. Is a prospector a minor? Would you say that? Yeah. Minor threat. Minor threat. That would work. That would work. The Chinese title for Baby Driver was Extreme Bandit Car God. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. <laughs> the Chinese titles, I think, are some of the best. I, I learned recently that Austin Powers in China is called Ace Big Cheap Spy. <laughs> <laughs> Highly recommend uh, Sisu. And um, and yeah, this was this premiered at Toronto uh, Film Festival in the midnight movie slot. And I think if you, you know, should it ever pop up at a rep program and it's like a late night screening, do make a beeline for it. Because I think seeing it sort of late at night with a crowd. Oh, I wish I'd seen it with a crowd. I'm embarrassed to say I saw it on the plane. And it made me feel so, such an an idiot because the distributor had been saying, hey, would Mr. Wright like to see Sisu before it comes out? We can put it on at the cinema. And I was like, and I, I, I was busy. But but next time it's on at the cinema or the Prince Charles or somewhere, I will go and see it and take a bunch of friends because it is a blast. Hello, listeners. Sam here, just dropping a little intermission into this bumper end of your special podcast with the wonderful Edgar Wright. We're five films down, and there's five more bangers coming up after this message. We here at the 90 Min Film Fest are a completely independent podcast. We make the show for fun, in our spare time, all to spread the good word of under 90 minutes cinema. We intend to stay independent, but listeners, I'm asking for your support. If you like what you hear, and are able to, please consider leaving us a tip on our Ko-fi page. You can find us at ko-fi.com slash 90 Min Film Fest. That's ko-fi.com slash 90minfilmfest. You can leave us a one-off donation for as little as £3. It helps us cover the bills that come with running a podcast, such as hosting fees and equipment costs, all for less than the price of a cup of coffee. For more info, there's a link in our show notes. And don't worry at all if you're unable to donate. The fact that you're listening means the world to us. And if you listen on an app that allows ratings or reviews, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd love it if you could leave a positive star rating or comment. They help others find our show and spread great under 90 minute film recommendations with even more people all across the globe. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed if you don't already. We've got a bunch of fantastic guests on the way in the coming weeks and months. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show! your name? Harold. Harold Chasen. Oh, how do you do? I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you may call me Maud. How do you do? Nice to meet you. Well, thank you. I think we're going to be great friends, don't you? Okay, listeners, moving on to film number five, another classic. We've got Harold and Maud. Yes, I, um, I've seen this many times. Um, although I don't think I'd seen it for a few years. And and again, it is one of those films that I, I love this film. And I, I said to my girlfriend who had never seen it and she absolutely adored it, which is always a great feeling when somebody feels exactly the same way about the film. But, you know, again, you're reminded of like, I think when I was watching it, even without this pot, I was thinking, wow, this movie's 19 minutes long. It's so tight. What's interesting about this film is that it nails a tone um, so like bang on in its uh, like screenplay and its performances and the way it's shot and the use of music and the playing with the form and so many people have been inspired by this movie and I don't I don't think I mean some of Hal Ashby's films are 
I guess the other one that's like similar in the vein to this is being there in terms of like the the kind of sense of mischief about it. Some of the other Hal, Hal Ashby films are a little different. I said Hal Hartley there for a second. Another person who makes 90-minute movies. Um, but what I just adore about this is um, I think it tonally at the time, people didn't really know what to do with it. And it was famously not successful when it first came out. Paramount didn't really know how to market it. Apparently, when it was first marketed, it had a sort of text-only poster that didn't really like make any sense. And so this is one of the films that I think really... Um, the, the term cult movie is overused, but I think this was a genuine cult movie. It was one of the, the movies mentioned in Danny Peary's first volume of cult movies because it did, over the 70s, build up a following through rep screenings Danny Peary says that is a runaway cult favorite, most memorably in Minneapolis. Residents actually picketed the Westgate Theater and tried to get the management to replace the picture after a consecutive three year run. <laughs> so, this is back in the people don't understand this now when films are on at the cinema for a week and then they're gone. And just when he said, Hey, when, when's that film coming out? Oh, it's already been gone. Back in the day, before like uh, video and before the internet and streamers, films would just play and play and play. That's how Rocky Horror Show went from being a flop to a movie that made domestically $125 million because it just played every week. And Howard and Maud was one of those films. Apparently, it didn't make its money back until 1983, 12 years after it came <laughs> out. But But what's amazing to me, given that at the time, nobody knew what to make of it, didn't know how to market it, it took a while to find its audience. I feel like now so many people have done the Harold and Maud thing in indie movies and in TV and just in comedy in general. Just this particular, um, how I mean, how would you describe the style of Harold and Maud? What I love is how um, like the performances are so good and and the actors that they're really fully committed. They they are taking these roles really seriously and and they deliver things in a really sort of deadpan way. But it's it's that dark humor which I I think really punches through because it's a surreal sort of story. But they are they are fully committed to that to those roles. Uh, Bud Court and, and and Ruth Gordon. I I guess in a way when it was coming out, I'm sure the reason that they made it is that it is a more twisted version of the graduates mm -hmm. in a way of you have this disaffected young man having an affair with an older woman obviously it goes a lot further <laughs> than the graduate um same same studio i think maybe i think graduate is paramount as well but what 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 i love about it is um obviously how ashby's style this is his first movie and it's so beautifully made like the opening shot alone is just perfect and i think Maybe when I'd seen this as a teenager or in my 20s, I'd enjoyed it for the sort of sense of humor and the fake suicides and and Bud Court's performance and Ruth Gordon's performance and the Cat Stevens soundtrack and all that. But I think watching it now, I just started to really appreciate how beautifully crafted it is. Look at that first shot of the movie where Harold comes into shot and you don't see his face until, you know, he hangs himself. Also, another thing about this movie that I feel like people don't talk about enough is in the canon of great looks to camera breaking the fourth wall, I think Harold and Maud has one of the all-timers. When, after one of the fake suicides, when the date runs screaming um, from the house, like, 
Bud Court does this really slow, like devilish look to camera. And it's just perfect. I mean, it's even interesting that I think as many people that have been in, inspired by Hal Ashby and, and this film, you know, you could point to straight away Alexander Payne, like Wes Anderson, many others. It's just an incredibly influential film. I mean, so much so, I really love The Holdovers, Alexander Payne's new movie. And yet, I did think when they used the same Cat Stevens song from Howard and Moore, it's like, oh, you can't just use the wind, can you? <laughs> um, we, we, you can. But like, um, and I love that film. I thought it was great. But it's, I think what's interesting, and I, actually, I was at Glastonbury this year and Cat Stevens performed. And um, I think because Cat Stevens hadn't performed for a very long time, he was in fine festival. His voice was just amazing. But the, he came out and the first thing he sang was The Wind which is the first song in in Howard and Maud. And I was just so sort of blown away by just the fact that Cat Stevens is on stage. Like, I can't believe I'm listening to Cat Stevens in 2023 seeing the wind, you know, 52 years after Howard and Maud. That's why the film feels so fresh still, because it has inspired maybe you know, more contemporary filmmakers um, there. And you sort of see little bits, you know, I, for me, it's all about that sort of the deadpan kind of performance and just sort of that dark uh, undertone throughout the film. Uh, but you're right, it looks great. I love the location work in this film. Oh, yeah. Like how they found these amazing houses and, and, uh, and, and you know, some of the exterior stuff. I also think it's got one of like the best endings in cinema. Yes. Uh, it was a great song over the end as well. But just that, that ending of the film is it's sort of devastating and exciting and 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 truly excellent i don't want to i think say the ending just in case anyone hasn't seen it but do highly recommend harold and maud and 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 yeah the ending really really stuck with me it's it's just a classic i mean it's also i i like any of these success stories of a film that comes out to sort of a muted response and baffled marketing executives <laughs> at the studio and goes on to be more famous than probably any of their hits of that year I can't believe they're letting you guys start a fight club. No, they're they're not. We are not. What are you talking about? We're going to do it. We're doing it. PJ, I wasn't being serious. Josie, did you see the way that Isabel and Brittany were looking at us? Ugh. Also, you heard the announcements. Girls are terrified. It's perfect. They need this. Okay, no, they need, like, mace, maybe. We can't do that, okay? We'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. Should we move on to film number four, which is Bottoms? Well, I am, I'm late to the Emma Seligman party in the sense that uh, I only watch Shiver Baby this year. And uh, she should get an extra credit because Emma Seligman in her two movies, her first movie, Shiver Baby, is 78 minutes long and Bottoms is 91 minutes long. But Bottoms I saw, I picked Bottoms out of the two. I like both of them. I love Shiver Baby as well, but I, just because Bottoms was this year. I um, I watched the movie and actually, again, I watched it a little bit late. Well, I know it hadn't come out in the UK yet. That's right. But Emma and Rachel Sennett both in doing the press for the movie had mentioned Scott Pilgrim many, many times, which was very sweet. So I kept sort of, you know, getting like tagged on things and stuff because they kept mentioning Scott Pilgrim in regards to Bottoms. And in fact, a producer that I worked with that was doing, I think, a commercial with Emma said, oh, I'm working with Emma Seligman. She loves your movie. She loves Scott Pilgrim. It inspired Bottoms. So, you know, a, that's very flattering. But B, I absolutely loved her movie. And uh, what I loved about it, because the idea of doing 
this is this is how she describes it. A campy queer high school comedy in the vein of Wet Hot American Summer, but more for a Gen Z queer audience. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, all that said is what I love about it is that the fact that it 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 doesn't it's it's progressive in the sense of they're allowed to have a lowbrow comedy as well. That's what I loved about it. Is it's not like it's a weighty film in any way. It's just like balls out funny and just so scabrous about everything. And with two leads that are not necessarily entirely likable mm. in the sense of their entire... the So basically it's about <laughs> two unpopular girls at school, PJ and Josie, who start a high school fight club. Um, basically, they, they pitch it as being female empowerment. That's why they're doing the high school fight club so that women can defend ourselves. But really, they just want to meet the hot cheerleaders and lose their virginity. <laughs> So I kind of like, I love the idea that this movie, and I think in, in this sense, I saw that it rubbed some people up the wrong way, which I think is sort of funny because I don't, I, I love the fact that, yes, it's okay like to have like the female super bad or like the female porkies even or something like that, that is just out there to be like entertaining and just like sort of, it's so satirical. And I, I just like found it very, very funny. It had me laughing like a drain frequently. And it, there's some other films of a similar ilk that I felt um, got bogged down by having not too much on their mind, but feeling like they needed to kind of say more. This just being like outright funny, like Heather's, or even something like, it gave me a bit of a vibe of like something like Rock and Roll High School, the Ramones film. I just love that it was just um, out there to just kind of entertain and make you laugh and just be completely tear it all down funny about high school there's so many little asides that are so hilarious uh, and also all the performers it was just like i'd only really seen when i saw bottoms i'd only really seen io uh edabiri on the bear where it's quite a dramatic part and a very reserved part and then i saw bottoms and theater camp which is another good 90 minute comedy mm. And I was like, oh, she's a real goofball. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, she's really funny. And I actually met her in Los Angeles. And I said, I said I'd said, i only ever seen you on The Bear. I didn't even realize you were a stand-up. And I hadn't seen any of your sketches. And I hadn't seen... So it was funny to come to Bottoms having seen her on The Bear first and think, this is a really like funny performer. And then Rachel Sennett as well. Oh, my God. The two of them together are just like... I just thought it was just so like just... One of those films that just feels like a true force of nature. So I loved it. I really like laughed like a drain. And I, I, I like that it was progressive in the sense that it wasn't trying to say anything serious on the subject matter. It just was. My favorite shot in the movie, in fact, is when they get the hot cheerleaders, one played by Cindy Crawford's daughter, Kaya Gerber. They get them to join. And there's a moment where Kaya Gerber is wrestling Rachel Sennett and Rachel Sennett just lies on the floor with a like hand behind her head, enjoying every second. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, this this is what this film is. I love it. It's so funny. 
I love that the uh, you know this isn't a film striving for realism, but it is. Uh, it's it's all about sort of getting its its point across and the how the character groups are like clearly defined a little bit like in Mean Girls and, and other sort of teen movies. You know the jocks are. It's such a good de- uh, portrayal of the jocks. Um, these these yes. guys who worship this idiot. Um, and uh, and there's a really great moment towards the beginning where he gets bumped very gently by a car on his knee, and it's really over the top and and all this sort of stuff. And in the in the canteen they sort of it like the uh, the last supper um at the, the very sort of edge and there's just lots of like just like really over the top or sort of heightened depictions of these these high school tropes uh but with this fresh you know like the teen movie is is you know something that's been around forever but uh this feels very 2023 very fresh but pays homage to all of these things that have come before it and it just zips by and it's interesting when we made scott pilgrim one of the things that was always a question from the studio in the making of the film and in the marketing is like how can they just fight and i was always like well it's like a musical it's like they're like musical numbers it's like when the emotions become too much they fight i don't think we need to really explain it and what's funny at the end of this movie is that they they do a gag about the fact that like everybody's dead yeah. <laughs> like that they actually in the fighting and in the sort of the final conflict that people have actually died right and then what's funny is i said this to emma because i did a q a with her that there was a we never shot this scene. It was almost like a gag alternate ending that we were going to put after the credits that we thought the ending of Scott Pilgrim could be that Scott Pilgrim was arrested by cops for the murder of seven exes, you know, that he'd like made them explode into coins. And then funnily enough, when I saw the ending of Bottoms, I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of like the ending that we never shot. <laughs> um, it, it's it's interesting just where maybe similar to what we were talking about with Sisu as well. I just love that it's primary function is just to make you laugh and i hope people aren't put off by the film because they think it's maybe trying to sort of be virtue signaling in a way because it is like one of the funniest and most raucous like movies and in in a way i think it like it gets away with a lot more um in terms of its kind of black humor um because of who emma and rachel are i think that actually it goes sort of um beyond the pale in a way that like many black comedies of our youth did and and I loved it for that. I know having spoken to Emma, I know that it was difficult for them to make on a number of levels, but that doesn't come across in the finished <laughs> film at all. Like it looks like they're having a blast. It feels really easy, uh, sort of easy breezy and, and a really great film to watch on, on the big screen. We actually had Emma on when Shiver Baby came out um, and she chose the film Cretia. But we talked about Emma, uh, Shiver Baby quite a lot because that was like 77 minutes long. 78 minutes long, amazing. <laughs> Um, and and this is it's just bit, her bottom feels like a, a real handbrake turn, um, you know, in terms of tone. But I, I love that we have these two films from Emma in, in only a couple of years. Yes, and I think in a way, you know, maybe some people who love Shiva Baby and how grounded that was weren't expecting this big switch into something so sort of big and colourful and and sort of poppy as as bottoms. But I loved it. I love them both. So it just, to me, it just shows that she's incredibly versatile. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. And here I am now. I'm on the verge of a madcap Manhattan weekend. My God, you must really love this picture. Me? You've been here all day, and I've seen you here twice before. You mean me? Yes, you. You. you this is the fifth time you're seeing this. Henry, come here, quickly. I gotta speak to you. <gasps> All right, let's move on to film number three, The Purple Rose of Cairo, another classic. 
Yeah, I mean, I had not seen this since I was a teenager. And it's interesting sometimes, similar to Harold and more. But it's, I think I'd only ever seen Purple Rose of Cairo once. The Purple Rose of Cairo. 82 minutes long. I would say this is like, if you wanted to learn screenwriting, this is probably the perfect comedy screenplay in terms of how it sets up the premise, how it twists the premise, how it resolves. It is perfect. And I'd say, similar to something else we're about to talk about, I would call it a tragedy comedy in a way. It is very funny, but it also, it has such a gut punch ending. Let's forget what happened afterwards, but this is a time in 1985 where Woody Allen and Mia Farrow working together. <laughs> and let's say Mia Farrow is fantastic in the lead. The ending of this movie, I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending of this movie... Many films since have attempted to do the same thing. Nothing has done it as well. It has one of the most perfect end shots of a film in terms of wrapping up the theme of the movie. I won't. I don't want to spoil it, but I do think when people talk about great final shots of the movie, there's a close-up on Mia Farrow, which I'm not going to spoil, but... It's you've seen this shot in so many other films, but this is like the this is the perfect version of that shot and that scene and what it's trying to do. I just think it's like an absolutely perfect screenplay. The basic premise of the movie is it's set during the Great Depression and Mia Farrow plays Celia, who's a sort of lonely, uh, downtrodden waitress who seeks solace in cinema. Back in the days where during the Great Depression, the, the cinema was the cheapest thing to do. Let's go back to those days. <laughs> um, so, you know, when in the Great Depression, like, you know, cinemas would be full and sometimes people were watching things multiple times because, you know, there's no it's cheap and there's nowhere else to go. And, and also at the time in the Great Depression that the Hollywood films would be showing high society. So kind of people who were impoverished during the Great Depression and, you know, like a working class blue collar audience would be going to watch these high society comedies and musicals about the ritziest like apartments on like Park Lane in New York. So Mia Farrow's character is going to see one of these very movies, like a, a, a 30s uh, comedy called The Purple Rose of Cairo. And because she's her life is so depressing in her work and in her horrible marriage to Danny Aiello, who is a, a complete scumbag of a husband in this film. She ends up watching The Purple Rose of Cairo over and over and over and over again, to the point where the character of Tom Baxter on the screen, played by Jeff Daniels, uh, turns around and says, wow, you must really love this movie. You've seen it 10 times today. <laughs> and then steps out of the screen to talk to Cecilia and then basically leaves the movie to go off on like a romantic adventure with her. Now, when he leaves the movie, I'm not spoiling too much. This is all in the first 20 minutes. When he leaves the movie, the actors in the Purple Rose of Cairo cannot continue the scene. Like they're basically stranded there. This sets up a whole other subplot and amazing, amazing jokes. And, and something I think sometimes when you see like a great surreal gag, an idea, maybe not similar to what we're talking about, Quentin Dupar or Louis Bunuel, where you have this idea for something. And it's like, what can I do with this idea? He, you know, he wrote a perfect screenplay around this premise of what if, uh, what if an actor left a movie and came into the real world? And the way that then that kind of twists later is because it's become a problem and they can't finish this film. Or rather, this this performance of the movie cannot finish 
the studio is called and then they eventually get the actual actor Gil Shepard also played by Jeff Daniels <laughs> to come out and solve the problem by wooing her in real life and convincing Tom Baxter the character to go back into the film again I'm not spoiling too much of the movie but I just think this film is just a perfect bit of comedy writing and the performances is a very funny film but the, the central three performances by Mia Farrow, Jeff Daniels playing two roles and Danny Aiello they're all great <laughs> Towards the end of the movie, like I said, there's a shot of Mia Farrow, but there's also a shot of Jeff Daniels. I won't spoil it, but the shot of him on the plane is is one of the saddest endings of a movie. It's like sad and then in the final seconds happy again. I'm not going to say anything more than that, but please watch this movie. It is perfect. I just love that they fully lean into the concept, like calling the studio it's such a great touch. And when you see Jeff Daniels in his other role and, and the performances he gives in this film are, are both incredible uh, too. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just, and it sort of is playing homage to, you know, like say the, that classic cinema, Buster Keaton and, and, and that sort of stuff too. Yeah, that's Sherlock Jr. Yeah, I think yeah. that's one of the inspirations. It was like Sherlock Jr. and Hell's a Poppin' and films of that era that broke the fourth wall and he was, trying to figure out a way i guess i guess it does the reverse of um what buster keaton does in sherlock jr the other thing that's interesting about the movie is that michael keaton started making the movie playing the part of tom baxter and gil shepherd and was fired maybe not if not fired michael keaton and woody allen came to the understanding that it wasn't working so i think jeff daniels was a very like last minute replacement for michael keaton and jeff daniels is fantastic in the movie you know in its year in 1985 or 1986 it at the baftas it won best film oh wow I yeah because it. it was nominated for a bunch of stuff at the time at the oscars but i think it actually won best film at the baftas a rare under 90 minute win i haven't looked through the baftas but i know at the oscars only one uh, 90 minute film has won best picture the artist martin oh marty marty sorry yeah marty, not martin the not george Romero vampire film. that would film. be amazing <laughs> if that had won best picture uh, sorry yeah marty uh, i think it's like 1960 something uh, but marty is the only 90 minute best picture winner En tiedä edes nimeäsi. Voiko saattaa sinut kotiin? Kerron ensi kerralla. Asun lähellä. Hyvä yötä. Well, let's move on to film number two, another new release. We've got Fallen Leaves. Well, this is, I mean, funny enough, like following on from Pepper Rosa Cairo. I mean, this is exactly the same running time or maybe a minute shorter, 81 minutes. I saw this film this year and I totally was knocked out by it. Again, I feel I'm, I'm confessing a lot. I haven't kept up with Aki Karismaki as much as I should. And I felt on watching this that I felt like, oh my God, I'm I'm going to have to just go back and watch all the great ones that I've missed. And it's funny when I was watching this, my friends at one point, they said, oh, this is a bit like Wes Anderson. I said, this guy was around like 10 years before. But this, I just felt it was almost like watching like a Chaplin film or it had a Chaplin-esque quality to it. It's about a single woman, answer who lives and works in a supermarket in Helsinki. And then she meets, uh, I'm going to get this name wrong, Holapa, who is equally lonely and uh, borderline alcoholic or full alcoholic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, they uh, obviously from their first meeting, you want them to get together. But then adversity on a um, 
a number of different levels, some pathetic and some enormous keep getting in the way. And so I just loved how like simple it was. And also, even though it's incredibly deadpan, how romantic it was. And you really, as an audience, just wanting these two to get their shit together, or rather him to get his shit together, and and then be a couple. It's also worth, and this is, I guess, the case with a lot of Aki Karazmaki films. It's like present day, and yet a lot of the trappings of the movie are like 70s, 80s. Because as soon as it started, again, my friend who was watching with me said, is this period? And I was like, well, it has the... It keeps mentioning the Ukraine war on the radio, so no. Something that Aki Karazmaki does that's just beautiful is his color palette control is fantastic in every single shot. Usually it will be something that's in the decor and something that the character is wearing like match. And there's so many beautiful shots where it's really been well thought out in terms of the color control and the color palette. I was reading that he doesn't do more than one take. Oh, wow. <laughs> of anything, <laughs> which which makes sense with the with how the movie is. And also what I love about it is it's getting a lot of end of year love. And I hope it makes the final five at the, um, you know, for international film. It's a great film about the human condition. And I think the reason that everybody loves it is because everybody can, you know, has been there in some way. We've all had misconnections in love and all like maybe thought about somebody that you could have been with and uh, maybe if things had gone differently that you would be with them and so there's obviously so many things that you relate to in this extremely bone-dry deadpan <laughs> Finnish comedy <laughs> that seems to be set in the early 80s even though it's uh set in 2023 I just that said I hope that just because it's a comedy even though it has a lot more on its mind and it's so sort of human I hope it cuts through because usually at awards time comedies are dismissed a little bit against weightier issues um i hope that doesn't happen with this film because i think it's one of the most perfect films released in 2023 and, and perfectly packaged in a 81 uh, minutes long there but yeah it's really controlled like i love the camera work in this film like those static shots you're right the color palette is is so beautiful and and uh, and like you know some amazing scenes in a cinema as well like our previous film oh yes absolutely i mean even the poster of fallen leaves is the is the couple um i'm gonna mangle these pronunciations alma Poisty and Juicy Vatanen. I met him at the London Film Festival and I hadn't seen the film yet. And now I wish I could go back in time and go up to him and say, I love your movie. <laughs> um, she just got nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Actress, which was amazing. You know, like, um, so I, I, I really like rooting for this film. And like I said, I, I, I hope it doesn't get lost in the wash against some other movies that are a bit more kind of um, award centric if that's, you know what I'm saying by that. You know, if people are writing about this film, they might call it like a romantic comedy, which it, it's definitely part of it, but it's also so much more. It explores so, so much. I think like exploring the human condition, like you say, is a really accurate <laughs> uh, way to describe. But in terms of awards, I was at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year and there's a sidebar award called the Palm Dog, which awards the best dog in a film in Cannes. Yes. This this was the runner up. This this got sort of the silver medal after Anatomy of a Fool. Isn't the dog from the film Aki Carries Mackie's Dog itself? And it's on the post. It's on the poster as well. I like there's a scene in it where... Uh, <laughs> Where Ansa says he's coming around to have like um, dinner at her flat, and she says to the dog, she goes, "Come on, let's clean up." 
<laughs> but this film, if you're listening to this, like as this podcast comes out, Fallen Leaves may well still be in a cinema near you. So highly, do you, do highly, you highly recommended. One of my favourites of the year. Edgar, it's the big one. Film number one. Okay, so this is a film I've seen many times. I've seen it at the cinema before, but um, Stop Making Sense was re-released uh, at the IMAX. And I saw this film for the first time on TV. I can't remember if it was on the BBC or Channel 4, but I definitely saw it on TV. Maybe it was on BBC Two, actually. Maybe it must have been 1987 if it was like three years after it came out. And I was really, really knocked out by it as a 13-year-old watching it. I just, the conception of Stop Making Sense, of how formally interesting it is, is never um, not totally beguiling. Because Jonathan Demme, um, the late Jonathan Demme, very sadly, constructed this film over three nights on tour. Actually, three nights in one venue with Talking Heads at the Pantages Theatre in Hollywood. Um, got them to wear the same like outfits every day. So basically he got three days worth of footage and basically planned it out. So it, the as you've seen the film, it builds. So David Byrne comes on solo just with the acoustic guitar. Then Tina Weymouth joins him and then Chris Franz and Jerry Harris and the other members join him and then several other world-class, galaxy-like class, like session me i mean you can call them session musicians i guess they're honorary members of talking heads but just the most incredible band so now by the end of the film about halfway through you've got kind of 10 musicians on stage it's extraordinary and i think jonathan demi as far as i recall was had seen this show on tour and approached them and said you got to get this on film i think jonathan demi was actually shooting a movie at the same time or he was shooting reshoots for Swing Shift with Goldie Horn and Kurt Russell, by all accounts, an acrimonious production, and uh, was kind of whizzing away at night to shoot Stop Making Sense. So the idea that he shot this movie whilst making a film during the day is mind-boggling to me. Like, I mean, I and oh, that's the thing is, I think any concert movie, I, I, did a, I did a concert movie of sorts in the sense of I shot the Sparks gig for my documentary. So the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And uh, it was, you know, it's a really interesting experience, but you know, stop making sense is like the sort of the um, 24 carat version of any concert movie, just, just, but not in a way that it's, it's, it's stylish rather than flashy. It's incredibly stylish just because it makes choices. Usually a lot of other concert movies will just like, blitz with like a zillion cameras especially if it's a big band and just get as many camera operators out there and just shoot the shit out of it but what i love about stop making sense is jonathan demi and his and his amazing crew including incredible cinematography by jordan cronenworth that they obviously thought out a plan of how they were going to do it 
and also how it was going to develop over 90 minutes that you don't get recurring coverage they make the choice in some places to cover a song with only one setup um and they're switching kind of their angles to kind of make it interesting all the time um but it's not overly cutty and it's um it's just beautiful it's uh, i mean i i went to see it this time at the bfi imax and i took name drop alert just because he's a music producer nigel godridge came with me and we were both like so blown away by it. it was like i just want to watch it again right now i have two stories about this movie one is really disappointing but i was invited to two screenings in la with talking heads present uh that they had a24 had a screening at vidiots and they had a screening at the uh aero in los angeles and i got invites for both i, I couldn't fly out especially for it and i was so bummed but i do have this other story about stop making sense which i can take to the grave is 20 years ago, maybe a bit more, maybe it was like 2000 around then. I saw in Time Out when they used to have film listings. Uh, I miss them. Um, I saw in Time Out, it said, Curzon Soho said, this is like three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Stop making sense with intro by David Byrne. And my, you know, immediately like ring that with a pen is like wait what david byrne is introducing stop making sense at three o'clock in the afternoon at the cousin soho i'm there i call my friend who's also really into talking i said hey david byrne's gonna be at the cousin soho on friday introducing stop making sense he goes no way so we buy tickets we get down there early thinking there'll be a crush no we go into the cinema and this was back when the cousin soho i think was still one screen before it'd been split up we go into the cinema and there's nobody in there. And we're there early. We sit down. There's nobody in there. And I'm thinking, well, this is weird. This must be a mistake. Then maybe a couple of other people come in. So maybe, but there's only about 10 people in like a 400-seater. So I think maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong. This can't be it, right? No, I'm right. The person from the cousin comes out and says, uh... Well, uh, here to introduce the film is David Byrne. So David Byrne comes out to 10 people. I mean, this is like an Artie Fufkin spinal tap incident where somebody fucked up. Or rather, maybe it's the fact it was three o'clock on a a Friday (laughs) afternoon. But David Byrne does the intro to 10 people. I mean, so to see it like that, that would never happen again, obviously. Um, But I was couldn't believe it. It was like, he's actually here. And then also... He did the intro. Anyway, we watched the movie. It's fantastic. A couple of days later, and don't think ill of me for my privilege, I was in a fancy members club Soho house. This is in 2000. And at the bar is David Byrne. And I went up to him and said, oh, Mr. Byrne, uh, I was at that screening of Stop Making Sense the other day. And he goes, oh. He goes, how was it? And I said, it's it's great. I mean, it's amazing. And he goes, oh, well, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> I've met him again since, actually. And I didn't re-remind him of that. I said, hey, I was at that Stop Making Sense screening where there was only 10 people. But I don't know who, like, something happened with the marketing there. But I was actually, so I didn't see the film with Talking Heads this year. But I did see it with David Byrne and nine other people. A more intimate experience. A very intimate experience. (laughs) 
Uh, I think the film, yeah, because this is an amazing restoration and they've read under sound. So ah, watching it in IMAX and, and if you're in a theater with Atmos, like they've, they're they using all the channels because when it was recorded in the 80s, I, I, I was reading that it was recorded, the sound was recorded digitally and it's one of the first concert films where they had digital sound. So they had these like perfect masters still, you know, like it's been, they, they've been, managed to preserve them. So groundbreaking stuff now, but it means that they can do a proper sort of 5.1 Dolby Atmos IMAX Incredible. mix. I mean, that's what's interesting. I mean, it's one i mean ai is not the way to say it because it's not technically the thing but it's interesting with get back and also with the beatles single what they can do with modern technology to sort of do different things with sound and you know obviously they remixed kind of stop making sense completely it sounds incredible i i made me wonder when i heard that beatles track um where they you know rescued the john lennon demo and made it less hissy i thought I want not that you need to. But I said, wouldn't it be amazing if somebody took a Marx Brothers film and took away that kind of hiss of the recording at the time, so it sounded like it was brand spanking new? What would that sound like? Maybe that's a bad idea, but I did think about it. That'd be an interesting experiment uh, for sure. But yeah, I was. I, this has always been one of my favorite films. I've only ever seen it on VHS or DVD or, or streaming. So this was the first year I got to see it at the cinema, and uh, yeah, blew my mind. It isn't just the best concert film of all time. It's one of the best films of all time. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not hyperbole. It's true. Absolutely. Uh, interesting, on this podcast a few weeks ago, we also released an episode on True Stories, uh, David Byrne's only uh, directing credit, which he made just after Stop Making Sense. And I think Jonathan Demme was at least partially responsible for some, you know, pushing him in the right direction and being a bit of a sounding board, if nothing else. I'd like to see that again. I, I saw that whenever it was first on TV in the 80s, and I haven't seen it since, but I was curious to revisit that one. There's a really nice Criterion uh, Blu-ray I can can recommend. And yeah, nice uh, companion piece, really, uh, just because the music is so important in True Stories, as, as it is in Stop Making Sense, of course. Oh, well, that brings us to the end, Edgar. Ten incredible recommendations. I can reel off. Do you want me to reel off my honorable mentions? Yeah, because I guess like, yeah, when we were first talking about this, you had an amazing <laughs> long list. And, and I gave you the, you know, quite a, a tough choice, I think, to sort of whittle down to ten. But uh, but let's see what we what we could have had. Also, it's worth stressing. This is all just this year. So new to me this year, and this is going in chronological order, Ozu's I Was Born But dot dot dot. Mystery of the Wax Museum. Oh, my God, that is a two-strip Technicolor film. Incredible. Uh, the Most Dangerous Game, which is like 65 minutes long, which if you've never seen that film, you've seen many other versions of it. It's incredible. The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, which ironically was a title that I wanted to use for Last Night in Soho until I realized there was already another film called Night Has a Thousand Eyes, so I didn't. Forbidden Games, Kosh Boy, starring a young Joan Collins, there's Always Tomorrow, Douglas Sirk film. Rock All Night, which is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite Roger Corman films, which is 60 minutes long. Uh, Woman in a Dressing Gown, film with Sylvia Sims. Um, Colorado Territory, a Raoul Walsh film. Robert Wise's bonkers Cat People sequel, The Curse of the Cat People, which has very little to do with the first film and is, is quite, quite a curio. You'll be shocked that I only saw this for the first time this year, but Brett Goldstein shamed me into it. Bambi. First time ever seeing Bambi this Incredible. year. I'd seen lots of clips of it on Disney Time, which was like a Disney clip show when I was a kid. I realized I'd never seen the actual film. Um, Francis Ford Coppola's Dementia 13, which I think is also like 65, 70 minutes long. Girl with Green Eyes with Rita Tushingham, one of the Woodfall films. 
Brian De Palma's High Mom. Have you ever seen that? I've not seen that. You yeah. should. I, it's knockout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some of these ones are because I did that uh, talk with Quentin Tarantino for his book. Uh, so a couple of the ones that I hadn't seen that he mentions, like High Mum and this next film, um, Peter Bogdanovich's Daisy Miller with Barry Brown and Sybil Shepherd, 90 minutes long. Very well worth watching and and uh, um, unworthy of the um, scorn that it had at the time. It's a really good movie. Alan DeLong in Big Guns, a.k.a. No Way Out. Uh, the Mexican horror film Alucarda, uh, which is really worth watching. Uh, I'd never seen this one uh, with... Uh, Maggie Chung, Michelle Yeoh, and Anita Mui, the heroic trio. Oh, I saw that this year too. It's great. It's so it's good. It's bonkers. <laughs> Under the Skin, not the Jonathan Glazer one, the one with Samantha Morton, which is um, really worth watching. First time director, Karen Adler, who has never made another movie since, very sadly. Uh, Tender Mercies with Rob Duvall. The Madness film, Take It or Leave It, also under 90 minutes. Michelle Suave's Stage Fright, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, also with Michelle Yeoh. Uh, yes, Madam from 1985. One of the cult movies from Danny Peary's cult movies book. Um, Mexican Union drama, Salt of the Earth. Jalo stroke... Um, Italian police thriller. What have they done to your daughters? What a what a title! What have they done to your daughters? Question mark. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Shiva baby. We aforementioned the Wham documentary by Chris Smith, which I watched twice. I enjoyed it so much. Marcel the shell with shoes on. I could have talked about that one. I love that. Uh, Dario Gents' dark glasses, which I, I I liked a lot. There's a lot of great things about it. Phil Tippett's Insane Mad God, which is maybe 80 minutes long, which I watched on a plane and is so outrageous, that movie, that I, I started to wonder what the person behind me on the plane would, would lean over and say, what is the guy in 8K watching? A really good documentary, which has not been released here. Hopefully it will. Richard Shepard's Film Geek, which I think they showed at the Prince Charles or maybe they are about to show it there. Um, which is basically a memoir of um, his cinema going in the early 80s with his dad and all cut together with films sort of from a 1978 to 1983 period. It's really beautiful. Uh, Passages, Scrapper, great debut. Reality, the film with uh, Sidney Sweeney about reality winner. Great, like an under 90 minute movie. The Royal Hotel, Kitty Green's movie. Uh, which I really liked. Theatre Camp, which we mentioned before. Uh, Anna Kendrick's Woman of the Hour, which comes out next year, which is really great directorial debut from her, uh, based on a true story about a uh, serial killer on the dating game, which is uh, absolutely true and wild story. Um, But it was really great. I think people are really going to be knocked out by that. And then I'm going to run through these. I won't do notes on these. These are old favourites, all under 90 minutes, all watched this year. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Brief Encounter, fantastic. Richard Lester's The Knack and How to Get It. Richard Lester's The Bed Sitting Room. Brian De Palma's Sisters, The Wicker Man. Woody Allen's Sleeper, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Rolling Thunder, one of Quentin Tarantino's favorites. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, R.I.P. Paul Rubens. Modern Romance, the Albert Brooks film, fantastic. And Throw Mama from the Train, (laughs) which I hadn't watched since I was a teenager. And uh, a lot of it is really great. 
Oh wow, that's an incredible, incredible, incredible list. We've had, we've covered a few of those uh, films on on the pod, so we'll, we'll sort of link to those in the show notes. But we do have an Under the Skin episode coming with now director of the Berlin Film Festival, Trisha Tuttle, uh, about the it. Samantha Morton Karen oh, Adler one. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those movies that I remember when it came out at the time, but seemed to kind of get like lost. And sadly, when another more famous film with the same title comes along it makes it extra confusing but really i mean an incredible performance by samantha morton my god it's um it was quite hard to get hold of but i think it's now on bfi player so yeah. listeners do do seek that one out uh, but that that's an incredible list i mean thank you for pulling it all together in terms of whistling it down to the 10 we sort of spoke about in detail did you enjoy that process or was that kind of a torturous uh, sort of task to do i thought which 10 can i talk about easily hungover <laughs> perfect <laughs> <laughs> It's been really great to sort of you know catch up and, and, and talk about so many uh, under 90 minute gems. Whenever people say like, oh, I don't know what to watch, there's nothing under 90 minutes. Listeners, just go through this list of films. Yeah. Pick one. You're going to have a fantastic time. Lots of new releases in there too, which is often a, a criticism of, of cinemas today. But they, they are out there. But you, you just need to like look a little bit harder because they're not, all, not made by the studios. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Again, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Edgar. It's been great to get you on the show. I th- we covered a lot of ground, I feel. It's been, it's been a big one. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you doing this after the work Christmas do. And I must say as well, I've, um, after we, we were at uh, an event together recently, an all-nighter of all of your movies at Picture yes. Central, which was which was so good. And the crowd that came out were, were incredible. But uh, during that, we were talking about the new Netflix show, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. And at the time, I hadn't seen it. I have now watched it. Ah. And it is incredible. Oh, Such a nice companion you. to the feature film. Yeah, totally. And like, I mean, hearing those voices again, do those, do those performances. Uh, it's, it's so great that they're getting the original cast back. Uh, to, yeah, that was, that was my major contribution <laughs> to the series. It doesn't happen very often where something like that comes together so organically with the right people. Basically, where it came from is when people asked about doing something extra with it in any form. I would always kind of throw it back to Brian Lee O'Malley, the creator. Because if people would ask me and say, hey, is there any more that could be done with Scott Pilgrim? I said, that is like 100% up to Brian. And then he had an idea. You know, him and um, BD Grabinski came up with an idea together. And um, the other masterstroke of it is getting Science Sauru to animate it. Because it's funny that Brian had written the original books as a tribute to manga in the style of it at least and i had directed the film taking some cues from anime and now there's a real anime <laughs> series so it was like watching this amazing funhouse mirror version of the film it's just bizarre but i i'm i'm so happy how it came together and seeing that process of the animation being finished in japan was just you know beautiful it's a it's it's a good watch it's really snappy you know like nice sort of 20 or so minute episodes amazing soundtrack and and full of gags I, I, yeah we we loved it and no uh, 90 minute episodes there no all like under 24 minutes very again very very concise but a, a good watch over the holidays listeners if you if you haven't checked that one out yet um but yeah i want to say merry christmas and happy new year and, and thanks so much for special guest edgar wright thank you thanks for having me Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so you'll never miss an episode. You can also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you have a moment, why not share an episode with your friends? Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. 
The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Enjoy those shorter films, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.